you know this symbolic shit is a, a way of kind of seeming like you're seeming like you're you're helpful like you're down with something like you're trying to change something when you're not addressing the big problems at all you know Hello and welcome to Unlisted, a Magnet Coil media podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Byers. The quote at the top of the show you heard was from our guest today, Chris Terry. He was referring to the Confederate statues coming down here in Richmond, Virginia. Chris is an author based out of Los Angeles, California. His second novel, Black Card, is about to be published in paperback this August. Black Card is a story about a young, mixed-race punk rock musician in Richmond, Virginia, who uh, explores his identity. The book has been reviewed and featured in NPR, Pitchfork, among other publications. Uh, Black Card is Chris's second novel. In 2013, he published the young adult novel Zero Fade. Before relocating to Los Angeles, uh, Chris spent a large amount of his youth in Richmond, Virginia. He and I were in the same English department uh, at VCU, and we played in a punk band together. I spoke with Chris about a year ago when Black Card was first being published. I'll provide a link in the show notes. Uh, I wanted to repurpose that interview for this publication and project, but with the paperback coming out, I thought it might be a great time to catch up with Chris himself. We talk about the dangers of nostalgia, why racism is a public health issue, and his perspective on the Richmond Confederate statutes uh, coming down. Thanks for listening. As always, you can subscribe to Enlisted on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Please leave a review to help audiences find us. If you're interested in chatting, my email is jeff at magnetcoilmedia.com. Again, that's jeff at magnetcoilmedia.com. Here's Chris Terry. Chris Terry, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me in, Jeff. Yeah, so we've known each other for some time, but uh, can you talk a little bit about your novel, Black Card, that is uh, about to become uh, a paperback book uh, for those that might not know about it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, my novel, Black Card, it's my, it's my second novel, and it's a kind of satirical, slightly supernatural story about a mixed-race black punk rock musician who goes on a mission to win back his black card, which is the physical manifestation of his credibility as a black person. In the process, he kind of gains a more nuanced idea of blackness and of his identity, and also moves a little bit further into like a magical subconscious world. Um, yeah, it came out in August 2019 in hardcover, and the paperback is about to drop this August on its first birthday. I really enjoyed the book. Um, it was, it's been great to see you progress as a writer as well. And so congrats for, uh, for that coming out. And so, as you mentioned, the book has been out for about a year now, what sort of responses have you got and have those responses changed since the beginning towards now? They've generally been positive. I think the, the people that it hits the hardest with are like, it's kind of a story about being the black friend, being like a, a black person around white people. You could, I like to joke that the subtitle might be the dangers of hanging out with white people. <laughs> uh, so it, it hits it hits home with a lot of other people who have kind of felt like the chocolate chip and the cookie. Um, and I think other people that that are also interested in it are, you know, it's a, it's a it's set in the early two thousands and it's set in the punk rock scene, which is predominantly white, um, especially at the time. And it, it, it's hitting it's hitting with people who are like. Gen Xers who like kind of alternative culture and like hearing racism and white privilege 
uh, and blackness discussed through a lens of kind of pop culture that they already like, that they already are, that they already are comfortable with and interested in. I think it kind of, it makes it go down easier or it makes it easier to understand. How has it evolved? I mean, the Black Lives Matter really started popping off um, at, late, at late spring, about a month and a half ago at this point. And I was, you know, it, it, it's, it's, and my, my book was coming up a lot in discussions for anti-racist reading or reading, reading about blackness, reading black authors. And that was you know, really exciting and flattering and also kind of an ambivalent thing where it's like, this is, this is, I'm really glad that my book is getting this attention and I want to do the most with it that I can, but I also don't want to seem like I'm trying to profit off of a crisis. You know, I, I don't want to seem too opportunistic and cynical right here. I want to do this right. And, you know, I was feeling that pressure and still trying to do as much as I could. One of the things I've heard murmurings of that you just kind of mentioned from a different name is that anti-racism cottage industry that's coming out. How have you navigated that when thinking about that, of um, not wanting to sell out to a certain extent, but also you're excited to get your artistic vision out there? It isn't so much that I'm concerned about selling out. I mean, give me that money and we'll see if it changes me. Um, you know, it, it's more of, of how valuable is my perspective when there are other perspectives out there too. How, um, you know, not trying to take, trying to, trying to work in a space, but not take up too much of it. If I'm thinking about speaking about something, I, I try to figure out if it's, if I have anything new to say, if there's someone else who could say it better, who is saying it better, or if there's someone who deserves a chance to say it more than me, you know, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged man. There's, there are other people who have probably have fresher takes on things than I do. It's been an ongoing process, you know, since I was in my early thirties being like, Oh, I'm like 2003 woke. I got to get 2012 woke. And now, you know, it's 2020 and I got to really get the galactic genius brain going and uh, <laughs> stay caught up with the times, you know, so I don't get, so I don't feel left behind. And so I don't piss off people who I, um, whose, op whose opinions I would probably agree with or respect. You know, we're both middle-aged. How do you not deal with, but how do you try to educate yourself to to new ideas that are coming up from from younger generations? Yeah, yeah. Um, put my hat on backwards and try to talk their talk. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I think just the most important thing as, as you get older is, or, or just when you're confronted with something that messes with your worldview in some way um, that might put you on the defensive is to think about why you're on the defensive and, you know, to listen and to examine your own reactions and your own feelings before you dismiss something or before you react to something poorly. And I think that's, you know, important something for me as an older, as an older person to do. I think that's, and I think that's also something that goes for, um, you know, for, for Caucasians who are kind of trying to navigate a lot of this conversation about white supremacy. I, I, I imagine that you would immediately feel pretty, you could pretty quickly feel defensive. And that might make you want to dismiss some of the things that you hear. Um, but, you know, examine why you feel like you're on the defensive. Examine what about yourself that you're trying to protect. Or, you know, what, what about yourself that you're ashamed of addressing or scared to really dive into? I think that's, that's an important thing to, to do. You know, I saw something on Twitter where someone was one of those normalized tweets where people wanted, wanted to normalize the idea of changing your mind, of growing, basically. And I think that's important. So the book draws on, but is not a direct recounting of your experience of playing in punk bands. But uh, recently, Light the Fuse and Run, the band that we were both in, I was the third bassist, uh, you know, arguably the best, uh, starting an Instagram and in general kind of wading into that uh, nostalgic territory. Uh, as we're talking about uh, nostalgia and aging, uh, how has been it? How has that been looking back on that experience as an adult? 
uh, especially with uh, as you were the singer, which or and the mouthpiece essentially for that band. I, I think nostalgia is dangerous. I felt like that way for a long time. It really began for me, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago when I started seeing people throwing Mad Men parties. You remember that TV show? It needed to be like a cocktail party with a bunch of people, usually Caucasians, like wearing 1960s suits and drinking martinis and shit. And I remember being like, do y'all just wish civil rights had never happened? <laughs> like the only way I'd be at this party was if I was a waiter. And then those were just kind of stirring of like, you know, the looking back like that is dangerous. I feel like that about like rockabilly culture as well. My suspicions were proved right uh, when Trump got elected president, uh, because a lot of what he was doing was looking backwards as well. You know, it was like this, almost like this 2010s version of 1980s nostalgia for the 1950s or something. So, so I think I think nostalgia is dangerous and I've been very averse to it. But then, you know, COVID happened, it's a pandemic and it's a pandemic and we're stuck at home. And what better time to go through old things and find and revisit them, see what you want to keep. It's a time to kind of turn your attention inward, both to your space and to yourself. So I feel like our band, we all kind of had that week at the same time, had the week where we went through old pictures. <laughs> and who, who doesn't want to escape to some, you know, slightly grainy memories of fun stuff you, or cool stuff you did, interesting stuff you did when you were younger, when you're stuck at home, when you'd be, the future is unsure, why not revisit the past? You know, I guess that is technically a conservative impulse, but it didn't seem really dangerous. I'm, I'm proud of what we did as a band. It's really, really cool to be able to think that I've probably, you know, played music in, I don't know, what, 10 countries or something. And I've probably played in everyone I meet's hometown. I like having that kind of connection. I like that I was, that I was able to do that. And as I get older, it feels like more of an achievement than it did at the time. You know, it was pretty typical among our peers. Everyone was, well, not everyone, but a lot of people were touring the U.S., going to Europe, putting out records. Um, it's cool to get some perspective and be like, oh, that's, that's kind of a lot of stuff to do. That's cool. So that, that's that's one of my one of my main takeaways. I don't ever like to listen to my old music for any of my bands. I like to remember it fondly. I think like the Fuse and Run, I remember us as being a pretty good band, and I'm not going to mess up that memory. There's the nostalgia is that privilege to be able to pick and choose and uh, fine tune it in whatever way you want to you want to do it. Obviously, I've grown a lot since then, and there's a lot of stuff that I, I wish I'd had done differently in terms of personal growth, in terms of dealing with my identity, in terms of dealing with other people. You know, looking at it through that lens, I sometimes wonder what I could have done differently, but I'm not going to try to lose sleep over it at this point because I can't change it. I'm just trying to keep growing now. Yeah. Yeah. And if you'll indulge me one more uh, looking back question, um, first I will do a sidebar is I also think there's a little bit of nostalgic tendencies, but I also think there can be, you know, whether it's, a you know, an old screamo band, does that matter? Like some archivist tendencies to be able to, to pull and like, oh, I remember that. There was a bunch of photos in that group thread of like photos I had never seen before. And that's kind of cool to see, like just you know, like having different static memories from different individuals that they've probably moved from house to house or city to city as well. So yeah, that's kind of interesting to me. And it reinforces the idea of kind of truth or memory being extremely subjective too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I kind of think from the archiving perspective, when I look at when there's like old things collected from like whether they're ads or other punk bands or other just things like commercials from the 1980s, you're just like, Oh wow, that happened. Or like, that's, it just comes from a different time. And so I kind of like it from that perspective, but I, I hear you on the nostalgia can be a little bit dangerous, but if you allow me one more uh, indulgent question. So a band even older than that, 
that you sang on uh, had a song called Exercising the Southern Ghost in 1999 or 2000. And I remember that scene you guys play um, from the first time. I thought that was a really, you know, interesting message, you know, from as a white kid from the suburbs at that time. So you explicitly wrote about the tensions of having a, a mixed racial heritage. For anyone listening, can you describe your experience and how uh, your thoughts may have changed on that since it's been 20 years ago? Yeah, you mentioned you wanted to talk about that song. And, you know, like I said, I'm very embarrassed to revisit artwork that I made a long time ago. And I was like, well, these, I'm okay with these lyrics. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that was the, the first time I really tried to verbalize any of that. You know, I, was, I was writing about, I, I'm a, I have a black dad, I have a white mom. I'm, I lived in the Boston area through middle school. Uh, so, and I was mainly like socialized around white people. So moving to Richmond, it was like I was confronted with a certain type of explicit racism that I'd never really experienced before. And by that, I mean, you know, Confederate flags, seeing the Confederate statues up um, and hearing people talk more explicitly about things along racial lines, like using people's races to identify them in a way that I, I wasn't used to, to seeing before. It made racism a lot more obvious to me. Um, and it also raised some of my own questions or insecurities about my own identity, since it isn't so cut and dry, you know. And that, that was my first time of kind of trying to talk about that. I think I read Southern Ghost was something that people used to call Klansmen, I think. This is, I'm trying to remember something that I wrote last millennium, so I might be wrong. And I, you know, I thought it would be a cool turn of phrase to talk about exorcising that ghost of getting rid of it. Um, I don't, does, does that help? Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I think what some of the questions, so I wanted to hear perspective from the larger context of uh, growing up in Richmond or having a large amount of your youth in Richmond, we can talk about the Richmond, but I also think it's interesting from the context of um, bringing all that into your novel and working 20 years later, 18 years later, depending on when it was written, similar themes and ideas and how that may have changed art artistically. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, Black Card is set roughly 20 years ago. That song was written roughly 20 years ago. So it, it is, you know, the, 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 in, in writing that book, I was, I felt like I was kind of finishing working through some stuff uh, that I was maybe just starting in that era. And the, the work on which I really revved up maybe 10 years later, like throughout my 30s. Um, so, you know, you can talk of writing, talk about writing as being therapeutic as a way to kind of think through something. But I even feel like I had to think through things or work through them to a certain point to even be able to write about it in the way that I did. Um, so, so I mean, the, the book is about a mixed race black person trying to understand themselves as a black person and feeling kind of, and that process being interfered with by, uh, you know, racist society about the really limited portrayals of black people in pop culture and, if, you know, feeling like not, not, if not seeing or hearing yourself on the radio or seeing yourself on TV or like a portrayal of blackness that lines up with, the, the one that you might have experienced, um, it can make you feel like the experience you're having is incorrect or inauthentic, like there's something wrong with it. So I think like the big change in, in the novel Black Card is the narrator coming to understand that their, uh, their experiences are Black, even though it isn't, you know, the same as like the Blackness that they're getting from a Lil John and the East Side Boys song on the radio or something. Um, no knock on Lil John. Yeah, you know, the kind of the idea of like, if you know, that Zen expression of it, I don't even know if it really is a Zen thing or people just say it is, but like if a tree falls in the wood, in the woods and it, no one's there, does it make a sound? You know, the idea that's like, if you're the only black person there is the stuff that you're doing black, like how do you know? And so kind of going to that Richmond idea or the Richmond setting, I'm sure 
most of our friends were probably excited that you set a novel in Richmond. In our last talk, you mentioned that, you know, not too many books are set in Richmond, um, but there is kind of a, you know, a different cultural reckoning happening right now. I guess from that time you spent in your youth, can you talk about the perspectives from the monuments and what you remember? My family, like when, when we were living with my grandparents on the north side for a bit near Battery Park, and we got our own apartment at uh, on Grace Street on the 1600 block of West Grace off of Lombardy. And so if you took a left off my parents' block, like the, and this is my apartment when I was, you know, ages 15, 16, 17, 18, um, you take a left off that block, the first thing you see is Robert E. Lee. You see this huge, grand looking statue of this guy who fought a war to own slaves. Um, you also, you see his horse's ass, first thing, too. It's like extra insulting. You know, it's pointed at, at Newtown, at Carver, Jackson Moore, whatever. It's just a couple blocks north on the other side of Broad Street. It messes with your head. It's really it's really dispiriting. It, it's a daily reminder of, like, what the, your your city values instead of you. It's, it's like a threat. It's, you know, if, if you try to think too much of yourself, don't forget, we'll, we can do this shit again. We will do it again. And, you know, at the time, it was like, why are these here? And I, you know, kind of felt so powerless the idea of even the monuments being removed it just it didn't even seem possible it it seemed like such a far off goal so with that in mind it's been really you know exciting and satisfying to see you know to, to see some of these statues going away and to see people kind of finally revolting against them and to see that kahendi wiley statue go up at the museum nearby on Boulevard. Uh, but also, you know, I, I don't like the way that it came about. I think people were protesting because with, with very legitimate concerns about police literally murdering black people and it being legally seemingly okay for them to do that. They get away with it. They get away with it all the time. That's not okay. I don't think the police are really there to protect people. And I think finally other people, white people, like more kind of middle of the road liberals are starting to see that. And I think that addressing that, it takes, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to be take some take some huge changes, and I feel like it was a very it, it felt like a very kind of cynical tactical move to be like oh you're mad about police killing you okay well we'll take away these statues it's like okay this isn't going to stop police from murdering black citizens this isn't going to stop institutionalized white supremacy it's going to change the atmosphere a bit but it's a symbolic change and it's going to affect kind of slower smaller changes and I feel like. You just told me my house is on fire and you, I, I just told you my house is on fire and you're like, cool, well, I painted the door. What do you think? You know, it's like, yeah, I, I need to get out of this burning house. I need this burning house to go away. I don't need a new door. You know, this symbolic shit is a, a way of kind of seeming like you're, seeming like you're, you're helpful, like you're down with something, like you're trying to change something when you're not addressing the big problems at all. You know, do you think about that like incre incrementalism quite a bit or is that something that, you've thought about because that's a, I feel like that's also kind of a buzzword that even if it's a buzzword that's used for a lot of different things about. So I don't know any thoughts on that. I, I, I don't really have a good use of that word. I don't know if I can speak on it really intelligently, but I, I, I do. Think, I do think that, I mean, I would guess that incrementalism means like making these small changes that will eventually mean something big. And I don't, I don't buy it. I don't, I don't believe that idea. I think that, you know, you, you kind of need a, need a reset. You need a huge, big, revolutionary structural change if anything's going to get fixed. Because otherwise, it's just going to go a little bit this way to the left and a little bit to the right. And, you know, I think that the conservative side of this country has been really, really successful at moving the liberal or progressive or at least not conservative side of the country further and further to the right. Um, you know, and it's like it needs to just be cut out of the conversation. There needs to be some 
new um, new ideas. And you know, I, unfortunately, I don't think Joe Biden is going to do that. It's going to be way the hell better than Donald Trump if he gets elected. But you know, I I, I think it's just going to continue the back and forth near the middle that's sliding to the right. That's a great segue to talk about that. Like, who can you know where do where can some ideas come from, or like the idea of um, what ideas should be prioritized when they come from whom? Or when we talk about new ideas, like specifically on social media, there are a lot of conflicting messaging uh, about driving the conversation, the narrative of uh, a lot of these topics, including uh, racism and um, and other and other topics of the day. Can you give your perspective on you know what you'd like to see? on educating people who might be confronting their privilege for the first time or I can tell you what I, what I don't want to see. I, I think I, I don't want to see black people or people of color being forced to do, being obligated or forced to do even more labor in that space. You know, I think, I think we've been living it. I think that we're already exhausted. We're already tired. We're already overwhelmed. And so making us like, tactfully dissect things um, and, and kind of rehash things all the time is, is, is not really fair. But I think it's a catch-22. I also think that our voices should be heard. I think that we should be able to make some clear demands and have them considered, have them listened to, and ideally have them implemented, you know? But I also I think that white people haven't been listening to us for centuries. So how, how do we believe that it's going to start now? And I think that white people who have like a better or more progressive need, need to start doing more work with the people who are less progressive. I think this should a lot of work needs to be done just within white spaces without, you know, dragging black people into it to make us say our part again when we've already said our part. I don't know, but I also think it's a catch 22. Like there's, I think two of the books that are kind of popping the most in these conversations There's the book that's kind of written by that HR person who does diversity training. I think it's called white fragility and it's like a, written by a white person and it's a popular one. And then there's the, how to be an anti-racist by Ibram um, Zendi, I think is his last name. Um, black writer, buy, buy his book. Don't, don't buy the white one. <laughs> you know, and it, 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 it kind of, it can feel like being black or being a person of color, it can feel like a lose-lose. If you don't do the work, you're going to feel like you've compromised. You're going to feel like you're not, if you don't speak up, you're going to feel like you've compromised and like you are, you know, a sellout or ineffectual. Um, but if you do do the work, if you do speak up, you are risking loss. You're, you're risking a lot. So it's kind of fun to turn that conversation to give that catch 22 feeling to white people to put them in a lose-lose situation of their own <laughs> where it's like um you have to listen to us but don't make don't make us talk i guess like the reason i i thought about i you know i don't know how much you look at twitter i still look at twitter quite a bit with a diseased brain at this point and sometimes i look at it and just think like Oh, this is the scolding class. Not people trying to have conversations, but a bunch of people trying to like come down from all high. And whether it's COVID or um, I guess I kind of wonder like whose voices are being heard, especially when a tech company's algorithm is pushing it to you. And whether depending on what echo chambers you enter into. Uh, yeah, Twitter. It's funny. One of my New Year's resolutions was to actually look at Twitter more, just like so I could kind of have an idea of what the, uh, I guess, the discourse was or what people were talking about. And a couple weeks into January, I was like, oh, yeah, I need to get on that. So I, I log in and I start reading. And it was right when I think the controversies about that book, American Dirt, were popping off. Um, Miriam Gerba, who's a great writer here in Los Angeles, wrote a really scathing review of this book. Um, it's kind of uh, like soap opera about... Um, drug cartels and people trying to escape them in Mexico. And it was written by a non-Mexican author. 
And it kicked off a conversation about like, this is what gets a million dollar book advance when there's plenty of um, writers who are writing more authentically about their experiences who are getting way less money. You know, it's, it's a broken system. But I, that was my first time looking at Twitter and I'm like, damn, is it always like this? Is everyone always this mad? And that was just like an exceptionally hot few days. There's loud mouths on the internet and they, they, get, they can kind of be in their own echo chamber. And, you know, sometimes those loud mouths have a point. Sometimes they say something good, but it's, it's exhausting. You know, I, I try to sort of keep abreast of things, but, you know, I think there's, you can't get too deep into it because it's, it, I'm not going to say it's not real life because it's kind of become real life, but I don't know. I think it's a losing game. As I mentioned to you, um, I'm kind of towing the line with uh, healthcare and some culture stuff on this podcast, but more it's just uh, kind of fun to talk to people and uh, learn editing software and, and et cetera. But um, so within public health and healthcare thought leader circles, there's a rising call in scholarly journals and lobbying groups um, that racism, racism is a public health issue. Um, from your perspective, how do you react to that? I, I do agree that what is it, being black, blackness is a public health. What is it? Uh, racism is a public health issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I think white supremacy creates a generally stressful atmosphere that has negative effects on people's lives, on people's physical beings, on their mental beings. And that's all tied together. And that will all affect your, uh, affect, affect your, your happiness and your ability to function in, in the world. Um, I also think that, you know, there's even more specific stuff like doctors don't always believe that black people can feel pain or they think that we have a higher threshold for dealing with that. Like, I remember there was something with Serena Williams where she was having a kid. She was like, she was giving birth to a baby and something was going wrong in her body and she knew it and the doctors didn't believe her. And then it turned out, I think she was having something, something life-threatening was going on. The doctors didn't want to believe it. Like she could have died, man. So, you know, I, I think that even like the way that, medical professionals look at us and are, are willing to listen to us and understand us. And I think there should even be questions about, I think maybe even questions about your ethnic background would help. My sister, my sister and I are both pretty light skinned and like to a lot of white people, we look like white people with curly hair and she was having some health issues. And um, the doctor had her listed as a Caucasian. And it turned out that like she was, if, if the doctor had written her down as black, they would have probably more quickly figured out, the issue, because the health issue she was having is something that's more common among black people. But I think that healthcare should be a lot more available. I think it should be free to everybody. I don't think anyone, I think it shouldn't be hard to see a doctor and to get help. It should be easy. It shouldn't, you know, one ambulance ride shouldn't ruin your financial, shouldn't ruin your life financially. So with that in mind, you know, I think that, and that's not something that's just going to help black people. It's just going to help people of color. There's plenty of poor white people um, that, also could use more medical attention. And I think that's one of the things that's, you know, it isn't just white supremacy. It isn't just racism. It's capitalism, which I would say is probably inherently also white supremacist and racist at this point. But like capitalism is making it so that some people aren't, some people are making a whole lot of money or have whatever they need. And then some have way more than they need and other people have nothing. Other people are in danger. Um, that is really, really apparent in, in healthcare, especially now, you know, you see that with covid the people who are making money are, are making money, but not helping people who need help. There's people are out here dying. People are getting this disease and the solutions that the government is offering are things that kind of line the pockets of them and their cronies without, without helping anyone. And I even see that from the Democrats. I think they're being quiet because they aren't willing to offer anything substantial right now. You know, so they're just, they're just kind of letting Donald Trump mug himself on this one. And then they're going to be like, well, 
we're not as bad as that. But here, you can still uh, have one ambulance ride that sends you into debt for the rest of your life. Um, so in three words, Medicare for all. Yeah, I was. Uh, I think news came out today that 5.4 million people lost their health insurance since the pandemic began. Yeah, yeah. And I think that health insurance companies are predator. They're, they're predators. I think that they're just playing off people's fears and not giving anything or giving nearly enough back. I think that that entire system should be eliminated. Just to get back to the artistic nature of that, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me, but are there any artists, painters, writers, uh, musicians that you think are doing a great job of capturing this period of time that you want to plug? I mean, this period of time is ever-changing and so fast. Um, so I, I don't know what's exactly come out since this started that I can attribute to it. Um, what art is exciting to you is probably the better question. Sure. I like this Pink Sifu album, S-I-I-F-U. It's called Negro. Um, it's like an underground rapper um, who kind of made a really abrasive punk album. I've been listening to that a lot. It's funny, you know, in 2015, when Black Lives Matter protests were really happening, people were singing We're Going to Be All Right by Kendrick Lamar. And I feel like in 2020, it's, I don't know if people are really listening to this in the marches, but it's this guy screaming, police can suck my dick. It's a lot angrier. And I think that really speaks to the times right now. I also think that a lot of the stuff that people are talking about right now, it's been happening. People have been talking about it. So art that was made before George Floyd was murdered by the police before Beyonce Taylor was murdered by the police is still very valid. It's funny that, you know, Run the Jewels, the rap group, like they really know when to drop an album. And they recorded that whole thing before Run the Jewels 4, before this current moment. But it's still very relevant. They're still speaking about the same issues that people have been talking about for centuries. It's just that kind of the middle of the road, a.k.a. like white liberals are finally catching up. What are you excited to be working on? Um, I'm trying to write a mystery novel. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I I'm, I'm just started doing screenwriting work. Um, I got hired to adapt Black Card, my novel, into, into a TV pilot. So I've been working on that. And yeah, hopefully that kind of gets some legs. It's exciting to be able to work on stuff that's close to my heart that I'm passionate about, especially at this time when I'm at home with my family and my time is at a premium because I'm chasing a five-year-old around and doing even more dishes than usual. And uh, you have the paperback of Black Card coming out this August. Anything else you want to um, plug? Um, no. Get, get that. Get you one of those or two. Where can people find you if they want to uh, drop in on you? Chris L. Terry, just middle initial L on Instagram and Twitter. That's the, that's the best way to find me. Um, it's mainly just jokes about my kid on Twitter. But Chris Terry, thank you. Thanks again for listening to Unlisted, a Magnet Coil Media podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Byers. Feel free to get in touch with me at jeff at magnetcoilmedia.com. Subscribe on Substack, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, subscribe. <laughs> Thanks and see you next time.